Well, good morning. I uh, read recently uh, where Eugene Peterson would occasionally send out newsletters to his congregation, <clears throat> and just to see if they were reading them, he would include typos in case they, uh, so that if he, you'd know if they were reading them, because they would say something if they recognized the typos. Well, this morning I've tried a similar tactic. If you can see, there's a typo up there. Actually, mine was not on purpose, and I didn't realize it until it was too late to fix it. And I went to try to change it, and it was too much work, and I decided this was good therapy for me and my disease of uh, perfectionism. (laughs) So we're going to leave it like it is. You know what it says. But I want it to be there because it is significant to what we are going to walk through this morning. You see, when we began our study on the disciplines of the inner life, we looked at 1 Timothy 4-7 as kind of our central passage of the summer. Here Paul tells Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. We really tried to establish early on that the disciplines of the Christian life were never intended to be mindless activities of religious duty. But these Biblical practices had a a purpose, and that fundamental purpose was to produce godliness. But I want us to make sure we're on the same page here, (laughs) because after all, what is godliness? We use that word fairly often in our Christian jargon, but I can only assume that for many of us, it conjures up a lot of different images in our mind. For some, godliness is equated with goofiness. (laughs) These are people who take the religious lifestyle just a little bit too seriously, perhaps. The Amish, some might suggest. (laughs) Godly people are seen as those who adopt kind of a separatist view of Christianity by avoiding many of the modern conveniences of our society in order to preserve kind of a pure and, and pious life. Some see that as godliness. Is that what the Bible has in mind? For others, godliness is equated with giftedness. These uh, godly people are the super, super spiritual, like pastors or teachers or missionaries or worship leaders. Godly people are seen as those who have a special gift, kind of like the special forces of the military, those who are sent in to do unique jobs that normal people can't do but is this what biblical godliness is all about? You see, in both examples, what happens is is we separate uh, Christianity into these subgroups, a breed apart from everyone else, and we call those godly people. And and here's the problem when we do that. In, In each case, godliness is judged by an outward appearance whether it be a lifestyle choice, a behavioral choice, a career choice. Godliness becomes something you do. But that is not a biblical view. Because from a biblical perspective, godliness is not something you do. It is who you are. Godliness is not an outward appearance. It is an inward condition. In fact, the Bible repeatedly warns us about an outward appearance that hides an inward disastrous emptiness. Turn, if you will, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
We want to look together at one of those warnings of what appears to be good on the outside, but is filled with wickedness on the inside. Second Timothy chapter three, verse one. Paul says this as he writes to Timothy, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And as I read this, tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then verse 5 says, Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Holding to a form of godliness, there it is, but yet denying its power. Paul is warning about those who, who emphasize the externals. Those who have an an outward appearance without an inward condition of humble surrender. You see, this is important and relevant to our study of the spiritual disciplines because it tells us that it's possible to practice spiritual disciplines without having been devoted as a follower of Christ. That's what it means to to have a form of godliness without the life-changing power of the gospel. And here's the missing ingredient. When we look at biblical godliness in this masquerading form, the missing ingredient is this. It's a relationship. Biblical godliness requires an ever-deepening relationship with Jesus Christ. The moment you divorce the relationship from the discipline, you become a Pharisee and not a follower of Christ. We know that because... Jesus condemns the Pharisees, doesn't he? And what does he tell them? He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful. But inside they are full of dead man's bones and uncleanness. Jesus is condemning the Pharisees for having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Because they have divorced the discipline from the relationship with Jesus. They were doing all the right things. But they did them apart from surrendering their life to Christ. Spiritual disciplines produce a biblical godliness because they draw us more deeply into a relationship with Jesus Christ. They promote a thirst for God and a humble desire to align our will to to His will, to be submissive to to His work in our life. And, And when spiritual disciplines exist within this context of a relationship with Jesus Christ, there is a transformation that takes place. And what I want us to do together this morning is kind of peel back the layers of that transformation and and look and see what actually happens inside our heart that produces a life of godliness. So if you will, turn to Colossians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 2. And look at verse 20 with me. 
Listen as Paul writes to the Colossians in verse 20 of chapter 2. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not touch, do not taste, which all refer to things destined to perish with the use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they have no value against fleshly indulgence. Now, there are a number of things that are significant in this passage, but let me just highlight a few for us. The basic instruction given by Paul to the Colossians is very much related to his words to Timothy. He here, too, is warning him about people who have a form of godliness but deny its power. But in this context, he speaks more specifically in describing what that looks like. He, he tells them that, that these are people that live by a list of rules. They have this legalistic view of self-discipline. They have lots and lots of rules about lots and lots of things. And they demonstrate what appears to be a very self-disciplined lifestyle. And from the outside, it gives the appearance of wisdom and some respectable spirituality. These may be people that you might see as teachers or ministry leaders. At the very least, these are upstanding people within our community. But Paul says that it is a self-made religion. In other words, they make up the rules as they go, and they set the bar only as high as they can jump. So there is something missing here. It all looks good on the outside, but Paul says it has no value on the inside. It is a form of godliness that has no power to conquer the desires of the flesh. These are good people with a bad heart. People that are trying to do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. There's a group of men that I meet with each week. And this summer we've been going through a study called The Reason for God by Tim Keller. It's very interesting format because what they have done in this series is they have called together about six to eight individuals, all of which are not Christian, varying views. And what Tim does is he uh, poses to them questions that are typical objections to the Christian faith. And then he dialogues with him, with them as a group about those questions and their thoughts on those questions. The last session was interesting. I listened to it this week. The two questions were this. How can God be full of love and wrath at the same time? It also asks, how can God send good people to hell? The typical questions. And so he interacts with them as it relates to these questions. And and it was interesting to me how this topic of future judgment exposed the foundation upon which they had built their life. One of the participants, for example, said this. He said, I would like to think that I'm acceptable to God if I have good intentions, if I have a will to be good, if I have a will to love, if I try hard to be a better person. 
that's a pretty common defense, isn't it? Listen to another person. She said this. She said, I'm at ease with taking the burdens of my own sins. I don't need someone else to relieve that for me. I don't need to think about the afterlife because I'm scared to live this life. She said, there's a famous quote that says, people are, who, live a life, who, who live a full life are not afraid to die. As for me, I'm living a full life, and I'm not scared to take the brunt of my sins. I'm not scared to do what I need to do to live this life. Wow. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? What everyone said in one form or another, even though they may not have spoken these words, their conclusion was, I don't need Jesus. I don't need Jesus. And at some level, I have some respect for them and their willingness to admit that fact. Because I think there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians today who would come to that same conclusion but never admit it out loud. We don't need Jesus if we live our life as if he doesn't exist. In fact, if we live like we don't need Jesus, we are refusing to die to self. And I think that's what Paul's point was in this passage to the Colossians here. Think about what he said in the very beginning. He says, if you have died with Christ. And then he goes on to describe and ask them, why are you doing these other things? Because if you have died with Christ, it looks different. There it is. If you have died with Christ. That's the power of a transformed life. You see, the the power of a transformed life is not found in doing all the right things, no matter how spiritual or noble those things may be. The power of a transformed life is found only in a relationship. The place where Jesus Christ does for you what you cannot do for yourself. Man-made religion does not redeem a broken life. Only God can restore what sin has corrupted and bring life. The, the life that you and I long for where once there was death. And because of his great love, God has inspired the words of Scripture to lead us to this place of redemption. A place where we will never be able to find it on our own. And so when we're encouraged to to spend time in God's Word, when we're instructed in how to pray, when we're told in Scripture to find a place of of silence and solitude and, and be quiet before the Lord, all these things are like road signs that are intended to, to lead us to that place where we encounter the living Jesus. And in each of these places, there will occur, as the, we travel through this journey all throughout our life, there will always be a choice. We can either walk in the way of the Lord, or we can choose our own path by doing what is right in our own eyes. It's either humble surrender or Self-sufficiency. That's our choice. These are the intersections where my will intersects with God's will. And as Elizabeth Elliot once said, when our will crosses the will of man, when God's will crosses the will of man, somebody has to die. 
Somebody has to die. And so that's one of the questions that I have begun to ask myself as I spend time with the Lord and I come to one of those intersections. I say, God, what part of me needs to die? Is there a a fleshly desire, a sinful place in my heart that I cannot overcome until I surrender to you? Maybe it's jealousy or anger or lust. Maybe I'm seeking the the approval of man for my self-worth or living without the joy in the Lord that is promised in him. Whatever it is, Lord... What part of me needs to die? And very often, the disciplines that we have walked through this summer are the ways in which God answers that question in my life. The easiest example for me is is time in God's Word. It is a rare occasion that I don't read the Word of God and He doesn't say something that reveals a significant part of my heart that I need to deal with give you an example. A few weeks ago, I was reading in Second Chronicles, and I came across a verse that says, when the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all of Israel with him. Now, what you need to know about that verse is that in the preceding context, when Rehoboam came to assume the throne, he did what was right in the eyes of God, Scripture tells us. He, he read the law of the Lord. He taught the law of the Lord with the people. And as a result, he had victory in the land. The the borders expanded and there was peace. And then he got comfortable. He decided that that God had taken him this far and that he could take it from here. He walked away from the Lord and all of Israel followed him. I read this passage and the Spirit of God reached deep inside my soul. And he said, Todd, Todd, Never abandon your dependence upon me. He says, your fleshly desire to walk in your own strength has to die. Not only for your sake, but there's a lot of people you take with you if you ever walk away. I promise you, he had my attention. And that's why very often in my time with the Lord, prayer follows an encounter like this. Because prayer is the place where where I surrender that part of me that needs to die. Example for you, this in this situation, I wrote in my journal these words, Lord, keep me close. And may I always find my strength in you. And may I never walk alone. You see, death to self is always voluntary. (laughs) And prayer is that place of submissive surrender. It's where we give ourselves up to God's plan. It's where we express our willingness to be led by His Spirit and we refuse to walk alone. Now, I know we didn't talk about this discipline as much this summer, but to me, this is where the discipline of fasting comes in. Like prayer, fasting is not something that we do to somehow manipulate God's will to align with our own. In fasting... We don't make God any more willing. But I do think we make ourselves much more receptive. And by fasting, I have in mind the decision to 
put aside any normal daily function for a spiritual purpose. And historically, that daily function has been eating. So fasting would be going without food for a day, as an example. But I think in our culture today, there are other things that are equally as effective. We call it a media fast in our home where we fast from screens. TV screen, computer screen, Wii screen, Game Boy screen, phone screen, right? We step away from those things. Some of us may need to fast from social media like Facebook or Internet news or sporting news. It it doesn't really matter. The point is the same. Fasting is just another spiritual discipline that God can use to, to strip away those false idols that we have in our life so that we find our greatest pleasure and enjoyment in our relationship with him. It is that humble act of giving him the highest place above all other desires. But if you're like me, there are still those times where it's difficult to be receptive. I've got 101 things going through my mind, things that I really need to get done, deadlines that I need to meet, and I'm a basket case. And when that happens for me, there's a red flag that goes up that says, Todd, you need to get away. You need to separate yourself and be alone and be quiet before God. At least for me, life a lot of times can be like a a jar of water and sand, right? If you shake that thing up, it's murky and milky and you cannot see through it. But set it down, let it be still, and over time, the sand goes to the bottom, the water's clear, and you can see through it just fine. Silence and solitude is what does that. It is that place where we come where we say, okay, God, I'm really listening now. And when we practice this discipline, I believe God speaks into our life. Why? Because any meaningful relationship is based on loving communion and consistent communication. Kristen Dindy shared with me this week about her time that she spent before the Lord, early in their marriage, as she brought before the Lord her desire for a family. She went on to say that during one of those times, she was listening to the Lord and felt like he was telling her to consider fostering a child. Now, this is not something that she had come up with on her own and wasn't sure that that was the means that she had in mind to begin with, but she listened. And she communicated and a submissiveness to God and said, okay, God, I'm open to this. But she made a request. She said, God, if this is your desire, I don't want to bring it up with Doug. I want this to be on Doug's heart. And when he brings it up, then I'll know that that was from you. Two days later, Doug comes to Kristen and says, have you ever thought about fostering a child? And because they were receptive to God's leading, They led them to Clara V, a blessing to their family and to now our church family as well. And as I've thought about it, that listening heart is so significant in our relationship with Christ because I think it forces us to go to God on his terms. Because if we're not careful, we can get in this routine where we're opening the word, we're praying, maybe journaling, doing a lot of things for a quiet time. 
but we never stop to listen. And before we hear what God's desire is, we move right on through it to carry out what our desires may be. Kids are often taught when they approach an intersection to stop, look, and listen. I believe when we encounter one of these intersections with God, the rules should be the same. Stop, look, and listen. Listen with a willingness to die to self in order to truly live in Christ. It's what I call living the resurrected life. It's one of those kingdom paradoxes where our sinful flesh is put to death so that our life in Christ can come alive. We die in order to live. And and I want you to know that, that I'm not talking about living in heaven after we die from this earth. I'm talking about a resurrection life here and now. And I believe Scripture is full of examples. And and one of my favorites is the the prayer that Paul writes to the Ephesians in his letter to them. In chapter 1, verse 16, he says this. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? And this power is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Paul basically says, I pray that you live the fullness of your life in Christ through the daily experience of his resurrection power. And resurrection, as we know, only occurs following death. The fruit of the Spirit only comes alive when those fleshly desires are put to death. And we can't get there by making up the rules on our own. Paul tells the Romans, he says, We are slaves of the one whom we obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. Because where self reigns, Death rules. Where Christ reigns, life is made new. Old things are gone. New things come. This is the resurrected life. And this life is so good, you need to know and be warned that the enemy will fight you for it. He will convince you to walk alone, to live outside of community, to try harder to do all the right things and to be a better person. He he will persuade you to believe that you don't need Jesus, that you can probably take it from here on your own. But I want you to know this morning, you cannot live without Jesus. He is all life and all breath. And not just for salvation. I want you to know, as Christians that we experience victory in our life only when we live a life of complete surrender. Day by day. Dying to self in order to live in newness of the resurrected life. The spiritual disciplines are just like signposts that lead us to those intersections with God. Those destinations of redemption. And hope where he makes things new. Brings beauty from ashes. 
this morning I saved communion until the end because I believe this is one of those intersections where we encounter the living Christ. We can make this a mindless activity just like all the other things that we've been talking about, but when we do, we miss the blessing of an encounter with our Savior. That's why communion is reserved for people who have a relationship with Jesus Christ because outside of that relationship, this means nothing. It's just a bread and cup. But as a child of God, it means everything. Because through this, we proclaim his death and his resurrection until he comes again. And not just as a historical event, although that's significant. But when we celebrate this meal together, we're celebrating the present reality of what happened in our life today. The resurrection power that we have that Paul prays for the Christians in Ephesians that we live dying to self and being made new in our life with him. So this morning, we're going to take some of the things that we've walked through and we're going to apply them to the context of communion. And to do that, we're going to start with the cup this morning. I know that's a little backwards, but that's okay. Because what I want us to do this morning is I want us to think about the significance of what happened on the cross. That little cup of juice represents a large amount of of suffering and pain on your behalf. His blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. He died so that you can have life. And so as you take the cup this morning, let me encourage you to do something. As you think about that sacrifice being made on your behalf, I want you to go before the Lord and I want you to ask him, God, what part of me needs to die? What part of me that that his flesh needs to be crucified. Because I think about that, and I think of Galatians 2.20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. He goes on to say, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes from the law, then Christ died needlessly in other words if i can do this on my own i don't need jesus i want to remind you this morning that you cannot do this on your own and you desperately need jesus and so when you hold that cup you think about what he did on your behalf and you offer to him a sacrifice of that which needs to die in you in order to glorify him. And watch the miraculous transformation like they did that day when Jesus stepped out of the tomb and see those old things made new. Bring beauty from ashes to create life where once there was death. It is just as much a present reality today as it was 2,000 years ago. Don't forget that. If the men will come forward, we'll hand out the elements.
His blood shed on your behalf. For I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is He who lives in me. Just take a moment and go before the Lord and ask Him what part of me needs to die in order that I may live life in you. Do this in memory of Him. Scripture says that His body was given for you. When it talks about that, I I believe that it has in mind, when we take the supper, the desire for us to have this picture of the resurrected Christ. Because a body that remains in the grave does nothing for me and it does nothing for you. What we are to remember is Christ resurrected. Let, Let me read to you out of 1 Corinthians. It says this, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witness against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Praise God that Christ has been raised. And when you take that bread this morning, I want you to be reminded of the resurrected Christ. And in that, I want to remind you of the resurrection power available to you who believe. So that like Christ, that same power works in your life to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to bring to life the fruit of the Spirit through life in Him. So when you take the bread this morning, that's what you think about. The resurrected Christ and what that power means in your life today to live for Him.
brothers and sisters in Christ, his body broken for you, his resurrection to give you life. Old things have gone, new things have come, and we are privileged to live in that resurrection power every single day. Praise God for the resurrected Christ. Do this in memory of him. Father, we are grateful for just the reminder this summer of those intersections that we have in life where we encounter your will for us and the decision that you give us to either surrender or to walk our own way. I pray, Father, that we will increasingly learn to find life through death, that we would die to self in order that you may live that we can experience the fullness of who we are in you because of your resurrection power in us every day. And we look forward to seeing that face to face. Until then, Father, may we live in community with each other, encouraging each other towards love and good deeds and glorifying you as ministers of reconciliation in a world that is broken. We need you, Jesus. Our life is in you. We pray this in your name. Amen.